0: the insightful words of Dorothy, the Wizard of Oz, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. Beloved, we are not in Acts anymore. We have a wonderful time preaching through the book of Acts for a full year, over a year, and it's time for a change. I love preaching through books of the Bible, because what that means is when Monday comes, I don't have to worry about what my text is for next week. I just keep going, right? And it's it's a great relief, in, in, a, in a sense, just not to worry about it. I know what I have to do. Just go to the next verse. Uh, but when we finish books, uh-oh, I do have a choice to make. I've got to figure out what we're going to preach next. Uh, so, why Jonah? Well, honestly, it's a short Old Testament book. That's one reason. Uh, I try to go back and forth between New Testament and Old Testament, Uh, But that's not the only reason we are here today. Uh, Some of y'all wonder if if I've got what it takes to preach an Old Testament uh, (laughs) book. You've only ever heard me preach something out of Acts, I guess. I don't know if I have what it takes. Um, But another reason, you know, we're we're approaching um, two years since we replanted in the month of October 2021. And after preaching the book of Acts, Jonah seems to be a fitting book to sort of challenge our continued obedience and faithfulness. To the will of God. We have been challenged with the New Testament model, the mandate of devoting ourselves to the Apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship of the saints, to prayers. We've been sent as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We've seen the will of God for a New Testament church and how they should operate and how they should behave. The question that we face now into a new church year coming this October is will we obey or will we flee? Will we obey, will we remain faithful, or will we run? Jonah is a book of competing wills. It is the will of God versus the will of man. But the irony in the book of Jonah is that Jonah is a prophet. Someone who's supposed to represent the word of the Lord. He's a man of the cloth as some people at work like to call me. Uh, he, uh, He ran away from the Lord, and we think that's just impossible. How could something so unthinkable, like a prophet, running away from the Lord actually happen, and then not only actually happen, but it become like this inspired, infallible, perfect word of God for us to read centuries later and instruct ourselves with? How is that happening? I believe the Lord has done this because we are Jonah. The Christian life is complicated. We are sinners. We are not perfectly in tune with the will of God, even with the Holy Spirit dwelling in each believer. There will never be a time in our Christian pilgrimage in which we don't have to stop, check our hearts and our motives and our desires, and see if what we find there lines up with the perfect and infallible will of the Lord. And I was trying to decide on a subtitle for this series. And I saw several online that I thought were worthy competitors, and I just wanted to read a few of them to you. Other churches that have preached through Jonah, here's what they did. Jonah, God's relentless love. Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Jonah, when God says go and we say no way. Jonah, the gracious God and the graceless prophet. Jonah, from running to revival, Worthy competitors. But as you can see, I went a different direction with what we have on the screen here. After reading the book several times, this is what I came down to. Jonah, living in the presence of God. Living in the presence of God. The very beginning of this book sets the tone for the rest of it and all that's going to take place. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah's desire to flee from his presence immediately follows. But he can't. He can't leave the Lord. No one can flee from the presence of God. The Lord is omnipresent, right? Sunday school, one-on-one. He's everywhere, all the time. We cannot escape the presence of God. But then we are faced with another spiritual conundrum of the believer who does not want to be in the presence of God. Whoa. Is that allowed? How can someone who is a believer and by the Holy Spirit not want to be in the presence of God? Are they even Christians? Suddenly, we realize the Christian life is more complicated than we thought it was. Right? It's not all smooth sailing after our conversion. We may go through times of rebellion, even as Jonah wanting nothing to do with the Lord. But the presence of God was and is inescapable. Our goal through the book of Jonah is to make sense of how we live in the constant presence of God with faithfulness and not with groaning. We will be called to a deeper communion with the Lord and an awareness of His never-slumbering presence. We'll see a vivid display of God's wrath, and also a beautiful picture of His mercy and compassion. We'll be challenged to bend our will to the perfect will of the Sovereign Lord. We will learn compassion for the lost. We will gain a more sobering reality for the Christian pilgrimage that we are all walking together. Just to give you an idea of where we're headed, here's all five sermon titles subject to change. Today's is Running from the Presence of God. Next week, it'll be five weeks. Next week will be fear in the presence of God. Week three will be praise in the presence of God. Week four will be preaching in the presence of God. and week five will be depression in the presence of God. Depression. Just by the titles, Christian life's complicated, huh? Christian life is complicated. Thank you for preaching last week, Jay. (laughs) Uh, It was good to sit and color with Isla and learn about grace. And I'm thankful to be back uh, this morning, though, to give you the word of the Lord. Let's read verse 1 again. And point number 1, the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up. Before me, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Here's a quick Bible quiz What makes a prophet a prophet? The word of the Lord, right? Other than that, they're just dudes, right? The word of the Lord. We typically assimilate prophets with the ministry of prophecy, as in a foretelling of future events, which is often the case. But more than that, the role of the prophet was simply to be a messenger of what God had to say. They didn't have anything else to say, which is why we take preaching so seriously, right? We're just saying what God says. That's what Jay did last week. Like, just tell them what it says, right? We just tell you what it says. That, that was Jonah's job. This was the job of the prophet. All the prophet books of the Old Testament have this in common, that the word of the Lord came to them Therefore, Jonah was a prophet. But this wasn't Jonah's first rodeo. You may not know. know, We just have this one tiny little book uh, in the Minor Prophets uh, of Jonah's record. Jonah lived and prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. And he's actually referenced as a prophet in 2 Kings chapter 14. That would be a good chapter to go back and read later today or this week. 2 Kings chapter 14. Jeroboam was a king. Who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You see that flip-flop, right? The good king's bad king. Good king. He was a bad king who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but God used Jonah during this time where Jeroboam II was king to prophesy and to help shore up the borders of Israel and to protect them from being blotted out by surrounding nations. Because of Jonah, they were saved essentially. Uh, They built up their walls, and they were protected against enemies. That was Jonah who did that. Jonah was kind of a hero, you know, during the days of an evil king. He saved them from being destroyed. And now we're surprised to find out this is the same Jonah who once before was like a hero for Israel, who prophesied to build up the walls, and now he's running from the presence of the Lord. There's also some wordplay going on with Jonah's name and his father's name, The word Jonah, or the name Jonah, means dove, like a bird. Dove season happening recently. I don't know if that's providence or not, but I don't hunt. Amittai means faithfulness. So we've got the dove, the son of faithfulness. And dove, of course, has a lot of symbolism in Scripture. There's some debate about what the symbolism might mean going on here. But one thing we can all agree on is that doves have wings. Doves can fly, right? Maybe it was a reference to his rebellion, flying away from the presence of the Lord. Maybe it was a reference to his flight of salvation to Nineveh for their salvation. Regardless, Jonah does a lot of flying in this book. The only time he's ever sitting still is when he is in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. He's a dove. And yet, he is the son of faithfulness, Amittai. It's also referenced in 2 Kings 14, so we know this is the same Jonah. Um, He would be a sign of the faithfulness of God. In 2 Kings, a sign of faithfulness to save Israel from surrounding enemies, and in this book, to save Nineveh from God's own judgment. Even though Jonah shows faithlessness in this book, he's a sign of the Lord's faithfulness to save and to deliver. So what did God say to Jonah? Verse 2, the Lord said to Jonah, Arise! Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. Here's where things start to get interesting. We love to talk about Jonah as if his mission was a no-brainer. The Lord said, go to Nineveh. Just go to Nineveh. Like, if we were in Jonah's shoes, we would have just went. Like, what's wrong with Jonah, right? Right? Just go to Nineveh. The Lord said go, so go. That's kind of how we talk about Jonah. Um, And obviously, the Lord says do something, we do it, right? There's no justification for Jonah's rebellion that follows this text. But if we see the context of what God was actually asking him to do, I think we can sympathize a little bit better with the prophet. First of all, who did God's prophets usually preach to? God's people, right? God's word for God's people, to call them out. And we have some examples in different prophets where surrounding nations are you know, judged and called out against in various ways, but not like this. Jonah is altogether a different story because he was called to go, not to Judah, not to Israel, the kingdom's is not even divided yet, to go to uh, Nineveh, to go to the capital of Assyria, Gentile world full of pagan evil. Jonah's call to Nineveh was unlike any other prophet before him. Now, Lord, if you want me to go to Jeroboam the king and tell him to build up the walls, you know, I'll do that. I've been there, done that. I can talk to my people. But to Nineveh, this is a totally different kind of command. And secondly, we need to understand what Nineveh was. The text says it was that great city. If you follow the scriptures and the influences of the world powers from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, well, into the New Testament, you see Egypt first come to be the big dogs, and then Assyria, which is where we're at now, after Assyria came Babylon, and then after Babylon came um, Greece and Rome. Uh, And so Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. This is before the Babylonian uh, captivity, um, in which Israel was taken over. They lost their freedom. Things got really bad. This is about 50 years before that happens, right? Israel's kind of doing great right now. They're booming. Economically, it's a good time to live in Israel, except for their rebellion. they got an evil king, its wayward hearts, you know, that they're not loving the Lord, their God, with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Their hearts were far from the Lord, even though they were doing well, which is why in about 50 years, as part of God's judgment, he's going to let Babylon come in and shake things up. So they can remember who the Lord their God is. It's God's punishment, but also his sovereign plan to continue building a people for himself across the whole face of the earth. Assyria was the world power. They reigned as a world power for almost 2,000 years. Long time. Longer than any other world power. Another pastor who was talking about Syria put it this, this way, in his perspective, if our nation, America, was to stay as a dominating force, as a world power, for the same amount of time we would have to be on top until the year 3,476. That's a long time. And this is, 50, this is at the end of it, 50 years before Babylon comes in. They have been reigning for a long time. No one tells Assyria what to do. They're on top. They're running the whole earth right now. And they were ruthless. They were dangerous. They executed anyone who challenged their authority. They murdered, raped, pillaged, conquered all surrounding nations. And then they would take their corpses and perform all kinds of public obscenities, like a trophy of their dominance and their world power. It's hard for us to grasp and fully communicate the evil of Nineveh and the evil of the nation of Assyria. But their evil had come up before the Lord. Their evil came up before the face of God, before the presence of the Lord. And as a response to God seeing their evil, he goes to Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. The first thing we ought to see in this book is God's awareness of all people at all times in all places. The Lord saw the evil in Nineveh. The Lord saw Jonah in Israel doing whatever he was doing. Nineveh's evil came up before him. God came to Jonah. He knew where everybody was all the time. He he could do whatever he pleases. The presence of the Lord is not determined by what's going on in the world. Let me say that again. The presence of the Lord is not determined by what's going on in the world. It's not determined by what's going on in our hearts. It's not determined by what's going on in any particular church. He sees all good. He sees all evil. And that ought to be encouraging to us, that the Lord sees all things. I think we forget this, or we subjectively deny it, um, because we see other parts of the Bible, and we, we struggle to put this... Together. It's like a puzzle sometimes, right? Ichabod. What happened? The the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. And the glory of God departed. Left. Right? That was devastating. A terrible example in the Old Testament of God's glory leaving. But God's glory were... God's righteous approval of a situation is not the same as his awareness. He left Israel, left the temple, so to speak, but the Lord never leaves anywhere because he's at all places, all times, right? And we don't normally make that distinction. You know, I think we we say, what is this country coming to? If we don't get our act together, God's going to leave us. You hear people talk like that all the time, right? God does whatever he wants. If our evil would come up before his face and he decides to do some things, he can do that. But the Lord doesn't leave nations. The Lord, is his presence is over the entire earth. All the time. Nothing escapes his sight. He sees evil. He sees good. Not only does he see it, he cares about it. God called out to Jonah as a response to his awareness of the increasing evil in Assyria. God, God called out to Noah in Genesis as a response to the increasing evil over the entire face of the earth. Right? And now God is calling out to Jonah in a similar fashion. The Lord sees the evil in the world. He cares about it. And he sovereignly works against it in unexpected ways. We could talk about Lot. Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord knew Lot was there. The Lord, even through pillars of fire, never left. His own presence was very tangible, even in judgment. What's the unexpected way, though, that God typically responds to evil? Proclamation. Proclamation. Sometimes you just go straight to judgment. But he doesn't do that to Nineveh, does he? He sees this awful evil come up before him, and we think, all right, bring on the fire and brimstone. Here we go. Nineveh's about to get smoked. But no, he says to Jonah, go, call out against it." The unexpected response to evil that God usually gives is proclamation. Proclamation of truth. He sends a prophet of the Lord with his message Which was certainly a repent or perish kind of message, but repentance was still very much on the table. To repent, to find life, for the Lord will judge you because of your evil. And it's interesting that God chooses to respond with evil, to evil, I'm sorry, he responds to evil with the proclamation of truth. And not just any truth, but he responds to evil with his own truth. God's word is truth. God's word is powerful. God's word speaks and darkness runs away. His word has the power over all evil of all nations. It doesn't phase him. It came up before him, but it's not like he was scared. He had power over all these things. So The first application that we're faced with, as we see the evil in the Lord's presence over all the face of the earth, is to just... Be only afraid of evil as much as God is afraid of evil. Be only afraid of evil as much as God is afraid of evil. How afraid is the Lord? He ain't. Alright? Y'all with me? He ain't. unless I know that there are some of us in this room who have some serious threats going on in our lives today. Some things that are downright scary. And that's Real. And I get that. And we're not clouding over that. But we just sang, though the wicked never yield, they will vanish like a breath. Yes, I know the outcome. Sure, Satan's evil plans will fail. We sing triumphantly because death has lost its sting. Is the Lord not conquered all evil? Is he not more powerful than all the evil over all the face of the earth? We're not supposed to cower over a TV screen with all the bad things happening in the world. We're supposed to delight in the precious words of God that he sends to combat the evil in the the world. The Lord chose a prophet to rise up and speak against it as a means of providence and deliverance. And so must we. We proclaim truth against evil. And to be fair to Jonah here, that's kind of hard. That's kind of hard to do. It's not an easy ask of us. Is anybody here just chomping at the bit, jumping out of your seat to go call someone out in their sin? Nobody? Who Who here loves to tell your, your co-workers that Fornication and adultery and divorce is a death sentence. And they deserve God's judgment because of their sin. Anybody here just love doing that? You know? Anybody here showing up at the abortion clinic every Saturday? There's not a lot of us doing that, is there? Anybody excited to confront your homosexual family member, this Thanksgiving? We shy away from doing all these hard things, and we call Jonah a coward for not going to Nineveh. We are Jonah. We are cowards. Here's what we do instead, I think. heard another pastor say this recently. We see the evil in someone's life or someone caught in sin. So we pray the Lord will send someone else to speak truth into their lives. Oh Lord, they're caught caught in something bad. I pray you would just raise someone up and send them their way that they could speak truth in their lives. Someone that that they'll listen to, right? Because it couldn't be us. Clearly, even though we have the word of the Lord, he He would never ask us to do something like that, right? If you see evil in someone's life, you can pray about it, but the Lord may have already answered the prayer. Because you know about it, and you know the Word of God. Right? He has already made you aware. He gave you His Word. And this is an application we're going to keep seeing, especially when we get down to the sailors. And they actually call out Jonah. They're not even Christians, right? And they, they don't worship Yahweh. And they call him out on the boat. This is an ongoing uh, theme that we're going to keep... Coming back to. But y'all, we have God's Word. God's Word has come to us. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to hold it boldly up high? Or will we hide it under a basket? We must share it boldly. Jonah does not share it, he runs. He runs. He runs from, specifically, verse 3 says, away from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. Verse 3 again says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, Jay preached last week. But God. Here we have a but Jonah. Very different story, isn't it? The but in the Bible can be the best news in the world, or it can be the worst thing ever. Here it's the worst thing ever. He hears the word of the Lord, but Jonah. God said, arise. Jonah rose, all right. Where did he rise to? Tarshish. He rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Notice in that verse, just verse 3. Tarshish is repeated three times. Away from the presence of the Lord is repeated twice. And we also have the word down, repeated twice in verse 3 and then again in verse 5. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah went to Tarshish, to Tarshish, to Tarshish. Away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord. Down, down, down. Down to Joppa, down into a ship, down into the innermost part of the ship. In other words, Jonah disobeyed the Lord. A prophet (laughs) disobeyed the Lord. The text doesn't tell us why he decided to go to Joppa or headed for Tarshish. But if you look at it on a map, you've probably heard this. This is in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh, right? Here's Nineveh, here's Tarshish, right? Complete opposite direction. It's not like he was making a pit stop or he had something else he was going to do before he was going to go to Nineveh. It's like the Lord said, go to New York. And uh, uh, um, he went to Mexico, right? He went the opposite direction. Uh, I read um, the Jesus Storybook Bible last night, just for fun, the account of Jonah, just because I wanted to see what it said. Uh, This is a kid's Bible, Jesus Storybook Bible um, that Isla has. And I wanted to see what it said. And at this point, Um, When Jonah fled, it said that he bought a one-way ticket to not Nineveh. And I I think that's an appropriate way to phrase it. Whatever he was doing in Tarshish, probably nothing. It just wasn't Nineveh. It was the other way, right? One-way ticket to not Nineveh. We also know this was outright disobedience because it's repeated twice that he was literally trying to escape the presence of God. Imagine hearing the very voice of the Lord come to you and at first being like, whoa, you know, but then not liking what he had to say. And for a split second, you might at least think in your mind, I can get out of this. If I I remove myself from the situation entirely, the Lord just won't have any choice, right? I I can get out of this. Even though he says to do this thing, there's a way out. Perhaps you can avoid the will of the Lord altogether if you run in the complete opposite direction. If he calls you to serve in the church, you can leave the church. Right? If he calls you to love your spouse, you can leave your spouse. Right? If he calls you to forgive 70 times 7, you can unfriend that person on Facebook. And you can pray that you never see them at the grocery store ever again. There's a way out of this, we tell ourselves. But not even our own disobedience can thwart the will of God. Um, Donald Barnhouse, an old Presbyterian preacher, this is a famous quote, you might have heard of it, but particularly applies here. He says, when you run from the Lord, you never get to where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. When you run from the Lord, you never get where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. And here we are, back on this theme again of the Lord's presence, right? Just in three verses. There's so much to just wrap our minds around here. I thought about this a lot this week. I went back to the Garden of Eden, right? Here is where, where we ought to start if we want to get a biblical theology of God's presence on earth. So here is Eden, perfect garden, sinless, man made in his image, They loved him, they walked with the Lord, fellowship with God in the cool of the day. All was well, all was right. This is how things were meant to be. But after sin came into the world, through their disobedience, Adam and Eve were excommunicated from the garden and placed in the wilderness. I think we would all be theologically satisfied to say that they were separate from God. Is that a fair statement? When they were kicked out of the garden... And the angels guarding the the garden? This is the heart of what sin is. Our fellowship with God is broken. We don't have peace with God. Right? We We need that relationship to be restored, and that's what Jesus came to do. But Genesis 3 doesn't say that they were away from the presence of God. In fact, God continued to speak to them. He gave them some curses. And then, even outside of the garden, in the wilderness... We have, like, Cain and Abel. He talks to both of them. He talks to Cain. Like, if you don't, you know, if you, if you, if you don't, don't get angry, right? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Sin is crouching at the door. The Lord is talking to Cain while they're in the wilderness. And, of course, what happens? Cain kills his brother. He disobeys the Lord. And the Lord talked to them again that day, too, to the whole family. That Abel's blood was crying out to him from the ground. And then God again excommunicated another. He excommunicated away from uh, wherever they were in the wilderness, this time Cain. And he put a a mark on Cain's head so that nobody would harm him or no animals would harm him wherever he went. And the text says that he went to the land of Nod, east of Eden. And there in chapter 4 of Genesis, we have the exact same phrase we have here in Jonah. That Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord never truly left Adam and Eve. The Lord never truly left even Cain. I mean, he put a mark on his head so nobody would harm him. He watched them in their sin. He cared for them mercifully even after they sinned, clothing them with animal skins. But the fellowship was broken. The word for presence, I haven't discussed this yet, is kind of tough in the Hebrew because you get like one word that means 20 different things. The word for presence most literally means face. The very face of God is what we would see literally in that phrase. The Lord in His holiness and purity and sinlessness cannot cohabitate with sin. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Even in the depths of Sheol and hell, as Eric read, right? We can't escape the presence. He's everywhere. We can't run from His presence. But he has never, and will never, turn his face towards sin in a manner of approval and blessing. The face of God turning away implies he is against the sin that has taken place. So now we think about what's going on in Jonah. The evil of Nineveh had come up before the face of God. His wrath burned against them, but in his mercy he chose a prophet to go and preach to them instead of judging them. God turned his face toward Jonah in blessing and commission. You are mine, you're my servant, I I love you. Go and do this for me. Jonah was accepted and loved by Yahweh, but Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh for fear of his own life, or fear that God might actually save these wicked people. But his decision to run from the very face of God would actually make him no better than the Ninevites. For they did not have the face of God in approval, and he ran from the face of God when he had approval from the Lord. He willingly ran from the Lord. can you imagine Adam and Eve just saying, like, "I don't like it here. let's get out of here let's go let's go to the wilderness. Can we leave the garden, God? Of course not, right we wouldn't I mean, can you imagine Cain willingly walking away from his family and everything that he knew and going to the land of Nod to be a loner in the wilderness? And yet listen. This is what we do every single time we sin or disobey the Lord. We are telling the Lord that we would rather be in the camp of the Ninevites than among the saints. We're telling the Lord that we would rather be in the wilderness than in Eden. We would rather be in the belly of the fish than in the glory of heaven. We would rather have God's wrath against us than the joy of his presence. Functionally, that is what we are saying when we sin. And God's will is going to be accomplished regardless of our disobedience or obedience, right? So our sin isn't hurting God's plans. God's not upset because, oh man, I had a plan, now i got to go to plan B, you know, because they disobeyed. No, sin hurts us, right? It doesn't hurt the Lord. Sin kills us. We'll see in a few minutes it harms even the people around us on the boat, sin is truly so dumb i think it's the best word to describe it it's dumb we we do it because we think it will be better for us and we won't hurt anyone but it is actually self-destruction oh that we become more aware of our sin and its deadly consequences Oh, that we become more aware of what it does to our, se- to our, to our bodies and to our souls. We come to our senses in times of temptation that we find fellowship with God to be a sweeter taste for our souls than the poisonous cup of sin that we would pant for the Lord like streams of living water. And here's the most terrible and simultaneously the most beautiful picture and illustration of sin and the presence of God that I can possibly provide for us this morning. Do you know what it is? It's the cross. It's the cross. Because about 700 years later, God's word would come again. This time, it would come in the flesh, incarnate. Jesus was the perfect prophet of God, the Word that was God, and was with God. He was absolutely sinless. He obeyed the Father's will perfectly. He lived every moment consciously in the presence of God. He was His beloved Son, with whom He was well pleased. The Father was pleased to look on the Son. And yet, at the cross, here's what happened. The Father laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It was the Father's will to crush Him. He was pierced for our transgressions. His chastisement brought us peace. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. He was cut off from the land of the living and given a grave among the wicked. He poured out His soul to death. They pierced His hands and feet. They divided His garments among themselves and cast lots. Surely He has borne our griefs. The cross is the most grotesque picture of sin that we could ever need. But worse than the piercing of his hands and and his feet and the physical turmoil that he experienced that day, how did Jesus vocalize the weight of sin and damnation as he hung on the cross? The worst of it all was this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As our sin was laid on Jesus, the Father, in his holiness and righteousness and purity, turned his face away from his own beloved Son. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have his righteousness. And what did we discover? the Lord will never look on sin with blessing. For him to become sin, the Father turned his face away. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he would give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. And to complete the most epic paradigm for us weak sinners, Psalm 22, prophesying of the Lord Jesus. You know what it says in verse 24? He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. In other words, Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive! Right? Right? The stone was rolled away. The father heard his cry. He hid his face no longer after sin was dealt with, even in God's justice being poured out on his own son, forsaking Jesus in our place. God's presence never truly left Golgotha. The skies turned black, right? The dead rose out of their tombs. The curtain tore in two. The Lord did not leave. He saw the affliction of the afflicted. And he rose his son from the dead three days later. He was fully aware of what was happening. And friend, because Jesus paid it all, you too can be given new life and raised from your spiritual death caused by sin. The Lord also sees you. He has searched you and tried you and knows your heart, every part of you from head to toe in the deepest trenches of your soul and your heart. And you know what he says after seeing every single bad thing you've ever done? How vast and measureless is the love of Jesus. Because he says, come sinners, poor and needy, weak and ruined from the fall. Jesus stands ready to save you even now. Friends, believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will be saved. Regardless of your obedience, disobedience, what you've done with your whole life is not about you. Jay told us very clearly last week, this is a gift. It's the gift of God come and be saved what we're going to continue singing seeing through four chapters is that this whole book is a representation of the gospel jonah is not a fun kid story about a guy who got swallowed by a fish not a whale it's about a prophet who went away from the presence of god into the depths of sheol and was delivered by god's hand to save a multitude of sinners jesus said that was about me the wicked Generation wants a sign. The prophet already spoke. The word of God has already come. Read Jonah if you want to understand me. So it's most fitting that we would take the Lord's Supper today and proclaim the cross through the bread and the cup. Let me give you some application to help you do that. Number one, are you afraid of evil? Can I say, don't be? Is that an application? Don't be. We pray for the Lord to deliver us from evil, and He does do it. And we should not watch the news and what's going on in the world and be fearful. Instead, we should look to the Lord. Which would you rather? A God who permits evil but doesn't pay attention to it? Or a God who permits evil and is always involved, always working, and always aware? We don't have to fear evil. Secondly, maybe you've been hiding from the Lord. You might not say it quite like that, because that just sounds silly, doesn't it? You know you can't hide from the Lord. But perhaps you stopped praying. It's a sign that perhaps your soul is hiding from the Lord. They had to beg Jonah to pray on the boat, and he still said he'd rather die. Throw me in the ocean. Perhaps you're hiding because you're not praying. Perhaps you've rested more on your works and living a good and moral life rather than communing with the Lord. I think that's also hiding, resting in what your hands can do rather than what Jesus does through you and for you. Perhaps you've been avoiding small groups for fear somebody will actually try to be your friend and get to know you better. Hiding from other believers is also a sign that you've been hiding from the Lord. If you're hiding from the Lord this morning, hear the word of the Lord. He will relentlessly pursue you until you are fully aware of his presence. And there is more joy at his right hand and pleasures forevermore than you will ever find on earth. Regardless of what you've done, or why you feel the need to hide some sin you might be struggling with, don't come like a functional Ninevite to the Lord. Step into the presence of God, repent, and find life in His light. Number three, I want everybody to hear this. If you are in Christ, you are fully accepted. If you are in Christ, you are fully accepted by God. This is what the bread and the cup preaches to us. We don't die in order to be saved. The Lord has died Himself in order to save us. It's not about what we have or have not done. How good we were this week. Or some guilt trip to continually remind us about how we had to kill Jesus. The supper is about atonement. He took our sin to the cross and he has given us a perfect righteous robe in the place of our sin as our substitute that we might stand before God as though we have never sinned. And we are counted as righteous by simple faith in Jesus. Jonah may have run from the Lord, but the Lord never ran from Jonah. Repentance and fellowship with God in the light of his presence is always just one breath away. Because Paul said in Acts chapter 17, the Lord is actually not far from any of us. He's not. The supper is us coming back to the table again after all of our failures, knowing that Jesus is still ready to forgive and the Father is still ready to welcome us to the table. Thank you for listening to another message from the Pulpit Ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com Or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.